Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us, that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. They have a part in. Now, if you have your Bibles, let me take a few moments to share with you as we continue our worship in the book of Hebrews. And I'd like you to turn to chapter 3. We've been going through from the beginning, and this is a fascinating book, is it not? It's a great book that uh, has given us some wonderful insight into Messiah and his significance to us. We saw in chapter 1, for example, that God is speaking. And he spoke to us in times past in many ways and in various times through the prophets. And while the prophetic voice of the prophets was all significant and it's the, the word of God to us, nevertheless, their word was nevertheless inferior to the word of Messiah who speaks to us today in this day and age. His word to us is unlike the prophets because his word was not a momentary word, a temporary word, or even necessarily a written word. His word was his life lived out before us in all of its magnificence and magnitude. It includes his teachings as well as his actions, as well as his interactions, as well as the things he committed himself to doing. And so he tells us the word of Messiah is what we need to be listening to in our day and age. And he tells us in these last days, that's a phrase about the messianic age. We have entered into the beginning phase of the messianic age because Messiah has come. He's come the first time, which inaugurates the messianic age. Oh, he's coming again when he will reign as king, when he will establish his throne in Jerusalem, when all the nations will bow before him and Israel will be the head of the nations and no longer the tail. That will be the conclusion of the messianic era in all of its fullness. But the writer is telling us Messiah has appeared in these last days. Already the last days are upon us. All of the prophecies about his first coming have been fulfilled and have materialized in Messiah's coming. And so therefore, it is all important that we listen to him, that we hear him, and that we respond to him. He tells us in proof of this reality, he tells us seven things about Messiah that is unique to Messiah in the very first five or six verses. And it tell, of those seven things, six of them refer to his redemption, and one of them refers to his glorification. And that's because he has fulfilled his first coming expectations and he is yet to fill his second coming expectations when he will be exalted and glorified before the nations like he has never been before. 
And then the writer turns his attention. Not only is he greater than the prophets because of the message he brings through his life and teachings and actions and attitude. Remember what it says in Philippians, have this attitude in you that was also in Messiah. So this full orbed picture of Messiah is his God's message to us in all of its facets. And then he tells us, he turns his attention to say, and not only ought we to listen to him because of that, but also he's greater than the angels. As important as the angels are and were, he is superior to them. Now, keep in mind, the thing that he is thinking about is that the angels were the mediators of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. He will tell us this in chapter 2, I think it's around verse 4. And Stephen makes this case in Acts chapter 7 when he is stoned. And Paul makes the same statement in Galatians chapter 3, that the angels were mediators of the Mosaic law. And the book of Deuteronomy chapter 32 or 33 tells us that when the Lord appeared to Israel on Mount Sinai, he was accompanied by myriads of holy angels. Holy ones is actually the Hebrew expression. And the significance of that is to say he had appeared to Moses along with a a whole angelic gathering that accompanied him. The New Testament tells us why they were there. They mediated the law. So as important as the angels are to the ministration of God's purposes, Messiah is superior. And he's superior for two reasons. The first, he tells us, is because as mighty and powerful as the angels are, Messiah is God come in the flesh. He is deity. And so he tells us that when Messiah would come again, all the angels are to worship him. And the angels are very careful about who they worship, as you know. They saw that those that worshipped or changed their allegiance from God to the evil one had fallen from God's good graces. And they have been transformed from that of angels to that of demons. The one called Lucifer, son of the morning, has now become Satan, our adversary and our enemy. All because of his pride and those that would change their allegiance from him to another angel. So the angels are very sensitive to anyone that, ought, that attempts to worship them, bow before them. Their first words are always, don't worship me, I am a servant like you are. But interestingly enough, when Messiah is worshipped, when people bow down before him, he makes no such statement. He receives their worship because he is superior to the angels and he is worthy of all worship, honor, and glory. It's like in the book of Revelation, right? That wonderful passage that says all honor, glory, and worship, and so on is to the lamb uh, that sits upon the throne, you know, in the book of Revelation. Can't quote it verbatim, but trust me, it's there. But when the angels are before him, they will worship him, but they will not worship. Uh, He will not worship those angels. He's superior to them because of his deity. There are other passages he alludes to to show this. But the second thing he says, not only is he superior to them because of his deity, he's superior to them even with respect to his humanity. Because as a human, as one who took on human form, he came as a servant. In fact, he says, I came not to be served, but to serve. He refers to himself as the suffering servant. 
He came as a servant. And so this, the writer to the Hebrews says the angels also are servants. They are ministering spirits to those who will inherit salvation. But Messiah is superior because in his servantness, he provides the salvation that the angels minister to individuals who will inherit it. So that, that one who provides the salvation is greater than that, those who minister to them who will inherit that salvation. And so even in his humanity, the writer tells us he's greater. And then what he does, he then gives us a warning in chapter 2. He tells us that we have to be diligent to follow this one whose words we ought to respond to and not to neglect, he says, so great a salvation. I love those two expressions, neglecting. He doesn't say anything about rejecting. He doesn't say anything about opposing. He doesn't say anything about refusing to receive. He talks about something more sinister and yet subtle, merely neglecting one's salvation. We all are prone to doing that, aren't we? We forget who we are and we settle for less things. We forget the salvation that we've inherited and we allow ourselves to become other than what God would have us to be. In other words, as we sung, we lose our clean hands and our clean heart. Not by determination to be unclean, but by neglecting the things of God that will reinforce our holiness. And so he warns us. Don't neglect so great a salvation. That's the other thing I love about that phrase. He doesn't just say, be careful not to neglect salvation, but so great a salvation. It's like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. He could have said, for God loved the world. But no, he says, for God so loved the world. And similarly, this salvation is not just a great salvation. It's such a so great salvation that I can't really quantify just how great it is. How great it is it? It's so great. Well, what is that on a scale of 1 to 10? It's so greater than 10, you know. And you can put whatever number you want, but it's just so great. And therefore, we have to be careful not to neglect what we are the recipients of. And then he turns his attention once again in the end of chapter 2 to reinforce he's greater than these angels, not because he's God and not only with respect to his humanity, but with respect to what he accomplishes in our behalf. He came into the world and took on humanity so that the one who could never die might die. The one who would never be sinless could take upon himself our sin. He went to the greatest degree one could go to, and that for our benefit, not his own. He did what he needed to do because we needed him to do it, or else we would be most hopeless. We were created a little lower than the angels, he tells us in that section. We were originally created greater than the angels, at least greater in authority. The creation was ours to enjoy. He placed us in the creation that God describes as good, good, good. And then when humanity is created, very good. And he gave us permission to just enjoy everything and anything in the garden with the exception of the fruit of the tree of, the good, of good and evil. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the moment we disobeyed God, we then 
had our allegiance to another. The one who had lured us to follow him rather than the true God. And as a consequence, we handed over this beautiful creation that God had made to him. And that's why the evil one is referred to as the prince of the power of the air. And the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 2 tells us, not only is he the prince of the power of the air, but in his hands is the power of death. He has, to this day, the power of death, the writer tells us. The only ones he does not have the power of death over are you and I who have embraced Yeshua as Messiah. Because we have been transformed from death to life. Everyone who does not know Messiah, death is a punishment that brings them into a place of alienation from God. But for everyone who knows the Lord, death is an avenue by which we are joined to him. It is no longer a punishment because the power of death to lead us to an alienated state from God has been taken from him because of what Messiah has done. But to benefit from that, you need to receive him as your savior needs to embrace him as Lord and Savior. In fact, Paul makes this very clear because the one exception of, mis- of the evil one's power of death over the believer is found in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul says there was someone in the congregation at Corinth that had sinned in such a way that he said it's not even named among the Gentiles, that a man would have sexual relations with his father's wife, his In other words, his stepmother. And Paul says, I have prayed, catch this, I have prayed that such a one would be handed over to the evil one to die. See, believers have to be handed over to him in order for the power of death that he has to be wielded against us. But notice what Paul says, not for the destruction of the spirit, but for the destruction of the body. Now, fortunately for this man, he repented. And in 2 Corinthians, we read of his repentance, and Paul encourages the body to receive him fully as a brother in Messiah. Praise the Lord is right. But the power of death, it's really a fascinating statement, isn't it? Found in Hebrews, belongs to the evil one. But it's been taken from him. If we embrace Messiah, and it no longer has applicability to you and I. And so therefore, he's greater than the angels. Because in his humanity, he suffered and died that we might be forgiven, cleansed, restored, and brought into a relationship with God, and the enemy no longer has the power of death to hover over us. And therefore, we no longer need to fear death, for it is a new avenue into the very presence of God. Now, really, that's where I should stop, (laughs) right here, right? Because it's already 1 o'clock. Only kidding, only kidding. (laughs) But the reason I say is because we just celebrated the Lord's Supper. And it's all about life. And it's all about the way that the Lord has united us to himself. But if I do that, that means next week we'll say the same thing again. We're never making any progress. So let me just take about another 5 or 10 minutes, if I could, to draw our attention to chapter 3. Because in chapter 3, and I won't read these first, um, first uh, six verses. Because in chapter 3, he now turns his attention. Not only is, Moses, is the Messiah greater than the angels, he's greater than Moses. 
And then he's going to turn his attention to the fact he's greater than Aaron. These three characters are critical because the angels mediated the law. Moses adjudicated the law. And Aaron was made high priest by means of the law. So he's saying he's greater than all of these aspects that are connected to the law. And then he's going to tell us he's greater than the law itself. He even brings into reality a new law. And that's what Jeremiah 31 is all about. We enter into a new covenant in which the law is not written on tablets of stone, but is written on our hearts. And so he even transforms the law, changes it in many radical ways. We'll see that in chapter 7. Can't get into all that now, but everything is revolving around the law because the law is that which sort of uh, characterized how the Jewish people behaved and lived. Now he's telling them, listen, I want your life to revolve not around the law per se, but around the Messiah whom he has brought into our world. So when you look at chapter three, he says, therefore, I love this phrase, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. So we are holy brothers, brethren to one another. This one, the one he's right, the ones he's writing to are genuine believers They're holy brothers, and not only are they holy ones, but they are ones who have received, and he uses the word, who share in a heavenly calling. They've partaken of a heavenly calling. They have genuinely received it. He uses this word in chapter 6, verse 4, and chapter 12, verse 8. And in both contexts, he talks about sharing in the things that God has provided for us. Sharing, for example, one of those verses will say, we share in the Holy Spirit. Here he says, we share in a heavenly calling. And so with him and with one another, we are heavenly brethren. We are holy brethren. So the big question is, how holy are we? We're as holy as yielded we are to his spirit and to his grace. That's how holy you are. We are holy in two ways, right? We're holy positionally as separated unto God. We are God's children. And in that sense, we are all equal. We are his children. But we are also not only separated unto God, we're to be separated from the world. That is a matter of discipleship. That is a matter of maturity. That is a matter of yieldedness to the spirit of God and to the word of God as it richly dwells within our heart. So if you're asking the question, how horizontal, how, 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 what is it? My Jersey accent's now doing a thing with me. How horizontally holy are we? And that will be determined by how devoted you are to the word of God and to the spirit of God that dwells in your heart to whom we are to be yielded to. But we have a holy, heavenly calling. And we are ones who are brethren to one another. And what does he tell us? He says, consider Yeshua. This word consider means think deeply about. Think carefully about. This is not just, you know, a sort of a surface reflection on. This is an in-depth dissection of what we've heard and learned about him. How significant is it to us? How much have we truly thought about who he is in the depths of our soul and in the recesses of our minds? And so he says, consider deeply Yeshua. 
And look what he calls him. It's the only place in the Bible, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, he's going to talk more about his high priestliness. But here's the only place he's called both apostle and high priest. Apostles, apostolos, means to be sent, a sent one. And what does Yeshua always tell us? I've been sent by the Father. I have come into the world. You notice he never says I was born. Only one place he says that, to Pilate. I was born a king, and for this purpose I've come into the world. But everywhere else, he's never born. He just has been sent. You know? It's like when people say to you, where are you from? You don't say, well, I was sent from New Jersey. You know, well, well, who sent you? You know? No, no, no. But Yeshua was sent. Isn't that kind of cool? He was sent by the Father, empowered by the Spirit, to our world to bring salvation to us. He is the apostle in being a sent one. And what did the apostles do? They represented God to the people. They were like prophets. Right? That's what Paul did. He represented God to the various congregations he planted and the people who gathered and read his words. And what did a high priest do? He did just the opposite. He represented the people to God. He would make atonement on the animals, placing his hands, representing the sins of the people to God. Yeshua does both things. He's sent by God to proclaim God, to reveal God, to make God known to us. And he is our high priest by virtue of the fact that he represents us before God. And when the Lord sees he's, and he's told by the evil one, the accuser of the brethren, this one has sinned, we have an advocate, a lawyer who stands up alongside of us and he says, oh yes, but this one's mine. His sin doesn't count against him because I have already borne the penalty for it. And you can't give the penalty twice. That would be unfair. And the father says, that's right. And we are forgiven and we stand righteous because he is the apostle who makes God known to us. And he is the high priest who makes known to us our need before the father and that the need is met. So what is the writer saying? Don't be alarmed by those who oppose you. Consider carefully, deeply Messiah. Because he's the one who has your back if you know him. And so he goes on to say, and he was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. So he tells us two things very quickly, and I've already gone over the ten I said I would take. But two things. He tells us he's greater than Moses with regard to his person. He's our apostle and high priest. And he's greater than Moses with regard to his position. Because while Moses was a servant in the house of God, meaning the house of Israel, Messiah was the one who was the builder of the house that Moses served in. And the builder is greater than the one who serves in it. And while it is true he served in the house that he built, Moses didn't build it, he just served in it, but Messiah both served and built it. And so he says, as great as Moses is, and he's not to be deprecated in any way, shape, or form, he's the lawgiver of Israel. He's the one who has given us more of the Bible than any other author. He's the one who redeemed Israel from bondage of 400 years. He is the one that God had revealed himself to in a way that he never revealed himself to anyone else. You remember that passage in Numbers where he says, all the other prophets I speak to, this is chapter 11, 12 of Numbers. He says, all the other prophets 
I speak to through dreams and visions, but not so with Moses. With him, I speak face to face. Literally, it says mouth to mouth. And he said, no other prophet do I speak to like that. And when we get to Deuteronomy at the very end, when his death is recorded, it says, and no prophet has arisen like Moses. In other words, the writer is telling us the prophet like unto Moses that we're to wait for, who would be like Moses in that God would speak to him in an intimate face-to-face way has not appeared. And so the Deuteronomy ends with, we're still looking for him. Where is he? And that one will not appear until Messiah comes on the scene of history in the first century. Now we have the prophet like Moses, to whom God speaks face to face. That's the one we've been waiting for. But from Moses until Yeshua, there's never been a prophet that was like Moses. So it's very interesting. The writer says, as faithful as Moses was, Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, was more faithful. He doesn't say Moses was less faithful. faithful. He says he was very faithful. But as faithful as he was, he was not nearly as faithful as Messiah has been. So with regard to his person, he's our apostle and high priest. By the way, Moses was also more of a priest to Israel than Aaron was. Did you ever think about that? You remember when there was the golden calf on Exodus chapter 32? It says that they were all worshiping the calf, and then God brought judgment on that because of it. Who interceded for Israel? Who was the one that prayed in behalf of Israel that God would not utterly judge Israel? It was not Aaron. It was Moses. And you remember in Numbers chapter 12, you remember when Aaron and Miriam speak out against Moses and they're judged with leprosy, they turn white. Who is it that prays in their behalf and intercedes for them? Again, it's Moses. And you remember when there was the the spies that went into the promised land and God brought judgment on them and he said, I'm going to destroy the whole nation and make a new nation. Who was it that interceded for him? It was Moses. So while Aaron held the position of high priest, it was Moses who functioned as a high priest. And thus, as Moses functioned as a high priest and as a prophet, it is Messiah who would be the prophet and would be the high priest. So therefore, he says, listen to him, obey him, embrace him, because he is the one who has provided you with the heavenly calling and the one who makes us partakers of all that he has in store for us. So are you a partaker? Are you one who has embraced him? When you partake of these elements, are they really partaken of, or are you just drinking juice and bread? In the Catholic context, anyone that's Catholic or has been Catholic or maybe still Catholic or whatever, you like that, right? You like that. And there's something to be said about that. There's something to be said that when we partake of these elements, we better be partaking of Messiah in genuine walking with him. Or otherwise, we are just partaking of another drink and eating another piece of bread. But if Messiah means everything to you, then these elements represent something far greater. They represent him who has done everything that has been needed for us to have it been done for, that we might have life in him. And so the Lord says, Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Who would want to refuse that? See, no one raised their hand. (laughs) So who wants to receive that? We all should raise our hands, right? All our hands are up. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel with a large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.